You are listening to the Less Drama, More Mama podcast, episode 60, How to Stop Losing Your Beep with Your Kids, my interview with Carla Nomberg. This is Less Drama, More Mama, the podcast for moms who want to feel calm, in control, and confident about how to handle anything life throws their way. You're ready to go from feeling frazzled and disrespected to feeling calm and connected. This is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Pam Howard. Hello, Mama. Today, in honor of my 60th episode, I'm bringing another guest to the show, and I'm very excited because I think you're really going to love this interview. Carla Nomberg is a PhD, a writer, speaker, and a clinical social worker. She's the author of three parenting books, and her writing has appeared in a variety of online and print publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, CNN, Mindful Magazine, Psychology Today, and Parents.com. Carla is a sought-after public speaker who lives outside Boston with her husband, two daughters, and two totally insane cats. Today, we're talking about Carla's latest book titled How to Stop Losing Your Beep with Your Kids and discussing some of the ways she suggests parents can do just that. Please enjoy this interview with Carla Nomberg. Hi, Carla. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I feel like before we even start, we need to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Nancy, because... Yeah, because she sort of introduced us to each other a few years ago. And I think she was very wise because we have a lot in common. I don't know if you know how much we have in common, but we both are social workers and lived in Boston or around Boston. Yes, We are both Jewish and pretty involved in our Jewish communities. Love it. We we both have two daughters. (gasps) We both experienced postpartum anxiety. Ooh, you're like my soulmate. Right? And we both ended up coaching parents about how to be calm. Amazing. Now, hold, let, let's take this a little bit farther. Okay. What's your favorite color? Oh, I do love purple. Oh. No, oh, wrong answer. Ended. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite color? It's blue, obviously. Oh, obvi. Well, I do like turquoise. Turquoise is like my second. Turquoise and purple. Nice. My favorite. We're staring at each other on a screen to all of our listeners out there. I'm sorry you're not on the screen with us, dear listeners. Right. So, hey, Nancy, we love you. Really, I mean, you and I preach the same things. And when I read your book, it was full of lots of information. And I guess we'll, we'll say the name of your book as... How to Stop Losing Your Beep with Your Kids, right? Love it. Yes. <laughs> it does have the S word in the title. That is a thing. And, and not just in the title. It's throughout. Let's yeah, be honest. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, <laughs> I, I've had friends tell me that this is the most profane parenting book they've ever read. And I, I think that's probably true. Yeah. yeah and, and that was on purpose, though, of course, because, you know, I mean, what I love so much about your book is that you are so relatable. And here you are, you're a parent coach, you have a PhD in, in social work, you're the author of three books on mindfulness and parenting, and yet you talk about 
how you lose it with your kids or you have lost it with your kids. And, you know, you talk about all the things that tick you off. And, <laughs> and so, so many moms can really relate to you and you give them permission, not that they need it, but permission to, as you say, shoot for a solid B, not an A plus in their parenting. Oh, yeah. Solid B is the way to go. And by the way, we can absolutely still use the present tense when we talk about (laughs) me losing with my kids. That is, look, it's an ongoing reality of parenting. And there's really nothing wrong with occasionally losing it with your children. That is the reality of living in close proximity with people being part of a family. I think the problem is when your explosions or parental meltdowns or whatever you want to call it become habitual or become a really common, regular part of your interactions with your children? Because that's none of us, that's not how we want to parent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Give us a sort of an overview of what we would find in the book about how to stop losing it with our kids. Absolutely. So the first place I start is I really want parents to take a different perspective on what's happening and why it's happening. And I don't know if this is your experience in your coaching practice, but a lot of parents come to me because they feel incredibly guilty and ashamed about their tests, about exploding at their kids. And they have this kind of mindset that they really are a bad parent. And if they were a better parent, they wouldn't be losing it. And I don't want any mother or father to feel that way ever. I actually, and I'd be curious to hear as a fellow social worker, I'd be curious to hear your take on this. I actually don't believe there's any such thing as a good or bad parent. I think. Agreed. Great. I love that you agree with me. Mm-hmm. Yay, social workers. I believe there are parents who don't have the right information, support, and resources, and who are really struggling and who are parenting in ways that maybe they don't want to be parenting, but that doesn't mean they're a bad person or a bad parent. Because I find that once we start labeling ourselves and other people that way, we get really stuck. And it's very hard to figure out where to go from there. But when we say, you know what, you don't have the support you need right now. You don't have the information. You don't have the resources, whether it's money or therapists or childcare, you know, you don't have what you need to parent the way you want to, then we can start to imagine how do we get there. So the first thing I do in the book is I want to help parents understand this isn't because you're a bad person or a bad parent. It's not about willpower. It's about the reality of how hard parenting is and what happens when a human being tries to parent another human being without having everything they need to do well. We talk a little bit about the neurobiology of meltdowns and what's happening. I don't go deep into this. Don't freak out, people. It's not hardcore. I I talk about it all the time on the podcast. So, Oh, good. Love that. Because I want people to understand this is a deeply human condition. This is not a failing. It's just part of being human. And then I explain to parents, or we talk about the idea of a trigger. And my extremely clinical, very scientific definition of what a trigger is, is that it's anything that makes it more likely that you're going to lose it with your kids. And that could be anything from exhaustion and sleep deprivation to chronic pain to stress about money to, you know, a painful anniversary coming up. Who knows? It could be winter in Boston where we have like eight minutes of sunlight. You know, who knows? It could be any of these things. And once we can get clear on what our triggers are, then we can understand that when we are triggered, we're more likely to lose it with our kids. And we can start to take steps to sort of counteract those triggers to take care of ourselves. Then I also walk readers through what do those steps look like? Mm -hmm. Some people call it self-care. I also call it stuff you have to do if you don't want to lose your 
stuff with your kids, although I use the S word. Um, And then I talk about what happens when you try to do all this self-care and take care of yourself and you still end up right on that edge or losing it. How, How do you deal in that moment? And then finally, we end with talking about what do you do after the inevitable meltdown happens? Because as hard as any of us may try, we're still going to lose it. And there are sort of more and less skillful ways to manage the situation after you've exploded. So that's sort of the big overview of the book. Okay, great. So let's dive a little bit deeper into some of those topics. I love that you talk about the importance of self-care and and specifically getting support because in my experience, so many moms don't reach out or wait a really, really long time before reaching out because they believe they should be able to do it all and that they should be able to handle everything. And, you know, you break it down into into different types of support. So can you talk about what those different types are? Like specifically, you talk about like different types of groups of people and some are more helpful than others when it comes to giving you support. Yeah. Yeah. They're all helpful in different ways. And look, support is, is not optional. It is required. And what I often see and what I did for a long time is when there's a family crisis, whether it's a sick kid or a loss in the family or a parent who suddenly has to travel for work or something, what many parents do is they kind of circle the wagons and shut everything down and disappear into their house with their family and kind of struggle through until they're ready to reemerge. And then they tell everybody what happened and all their friends are like, oh my God, I had no idea. And I've done this before. This is not the best way to do things, actually. I really encourage people to reach out to support all the time and to be there as much as you can to support other people and kind of have this... I don't know, circle of support. So the three groups that I think about is number one, I think about what I call our pro team. Mm -hmm. So these are the professionals that you specifically reach out to because they have expertise that you need. And so this is obviously like your pediatrician, uh, your children's teachers, any sort of therapist, whether it's a mental health professional or an occupational therapist or, you know, a speech therapist, any kind of person like that maybe a member of the clergy, a rabbi, a minister, a priest, an imam, anything like that, your own medical professionals, or maybe an acupuncturist or a massage therapist. I mean, really any of these people that you are reaching out to because they have some kind of support that will be helpful to you. Look, in an ideal world, what I would say to people is find the person that you trust and can really click with and connect with, and then just trust them, do what they say. Mm -hmm. So we're lucky enough, we have a great pediatrician that we've been with since my daughter was they were days old. And when there's a problem with my girls, I go to them, to my pediatrician, and I listen to what she has to say. And then I just, I do it. I right. Just, I trust her. Yeah. And that's what I would love to see for people. I realize because of limitations around health insurance and money and where people live, that's not always possible. But please, if you can, like trust the professionals in your life and don't think that you can sort of out Google them or out answer this problem when you haven't studied what they've studied, because you will make yourself crazy. That's not helpful. Okay. But also trust your gut. If you feel like something seems off, you know, get a second opinion, go find somebody else that you can trust. I am so glad you said that 100%. I also agree with that. Yeah. So if you go to your pro team and it's just feeling off and you have that parental intuition, listen to that too. So isn't it helpful in parenting how all the contradictory advice is all (laughs) right. Right. Yeah. And that. Yes. Good point. So we've got our protein. Then we've got what I call our crew. And I initially called it the carpool crew. And then my editor who lives in New York City where carpooling is not a thing was like, that's not helpful. 
So I just call it your crew. And basically, look, these are the people that you can rely on to help you in a jam. If you're running late to school and you're like, can you just grab my kid and I'll be there in five minutes? Or, you know, you need a carpool, right? For soccer, whatever, or somebody to walk your kid on this day and then you walk the kids on that day or you trade babysitting duties. You know, my whole family got sick with a stomach bug a couple winters ago. We were all in the hospital. It was horrible. When we finally got home, I reached out to all our neighbors and I was like, can somebody bring us like Gatorade? Can somebody run to CVS and get our meds? Like that's crew stuff. Mm-hmm. And like your crew, they may be people that you're good friends with, but they may not be. They just may be the people whose kids are in your school or in your soccer team or live on your street. And this is what you do for each other, right? And so I want people to know that if you're not like BFFs with your crew, mm-hmm. it's fine. It's fine. It's still a really important, lovely act of kindness that we can do for each other to make things easier. And the one thing I say in the book is that when you reach out to your crew, try to be there for them too. Because what happens is if you're the person who's always asking for like, can you grab my kid? Can you drive him? Can you do this? Can you do that? And you're never there to reciprocate. Yeah. I did like that part when you said that. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I realize that especially for working parents who reach out to the parents who have a more flexible schedule, like if you can't help in the same way, because you literally never pick up the kids, then have their kid over for a play date on the weekend or something. Find some other way to do it. Yeah. Um, So what would you say to a parent who's like, but Carla, I don't feel comfortable reaching out. I don't know how to, how to make that connection. Or, or I know parents who say, but my kid won't go in another person's car. I have to be the one to take them or they're going to have a meltdown. Okay. So those are two different issues. Yes. Really important. The first issue in terms of, I don't feel comfortable I would, I would, I understand that. Look, I really do. And so I would, and I think that's especially a problem in immigrant families or children of immigrant families. What I see a lot is a real struggle to reach out. And I definitely understand that. And so I would work with that parent, like step-by-step. Can you start by just sort of connecting with people on the soccer field? Like when, when your kid goes to soccer, do you go to soccer too? Or do you sort of stay in your car waiting? Can you go out and start to say hi to these parents? And can you spend maybe an entire season just saying hi? Because mm-hmm. for you, that might be the step. So sometimes it is these baby steps, right? And also if you're a parent who you're like, actually, I don't, my only work is taking care of my children. And this is deeply meaningful to me. And it's how I want to spend all my time. And I actually don't really want a carpool. Like that's working well for me then it's working for you. Great. Right. 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 You don't need, this is not a must have. This is a like optional thing to think about if you need it. Okay. Now in terms of my kid won't get in that car because they have a meltdown. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless you really think there's some major phobia going on there, but it's just the kid being like, no, I like my own car better. Suck it up, dude. Like my (laughs) kids, I'm sorry, but like, when I was a kid, think about when we were kids. This was oh my gosh, I carpooled my entire childhood. Right? And look, I will tell so you, so many different people. Like I never knew from year to year who was going to be in the car. That's right. Yeah. And my kids, they don't love our carpool. I will be just really honest with you. They would rather drive with me. They like the music I play. They don't like having to like listen to what the other mom plays, even though it's totally reason. It's just them. Some being- people's cars smell bad, and I remember my mom used to give oh. me perfume on my wrist so I could smell the perfume on the way to school. Yeah, you no, know, it's just, or maybe they don't like. I think they didn't like the booster seat in the other car. I don't, and I'm like, sorry, babe, this is life. I think that's important, first of all, because your kids learn to be more flexible, but they also learn the world doesn't revolve around them. Life is hard because guess what? Some day they might be riding on a subway or a bus and you want stinky and uncomfortable, you better get used to it now, right? This is life. So 
That's what I would say. But I mean, obviously, if you think there's some more significant reason why your kid is unhappy with the carpool, that's worth exploring, right? Right. So we have your pro team and your crew. And the last group I talk about is your peeps. And these are really your tight friends that you feel like you can text them late at night and be like, my kid, you know, made me insane tonight, driving me nuts. He's being such a little turkey, whatever it is. These are the people that, you know, as my husband says, he calls them his croc friends because he wears his crocs over to their house. <laughs> okay. I know there are people who wear crocs everywhere, including my children, but for him, it's like a big deal to wear crocs to someone's house. I mean, these are the folks that you don't need to clean up your house when they come over. And really, I don't want listeners to think that everybody has like a million peeps. Yeah. You need right. like one or two. Right. And if you have that, that's great. And if you don't, I have ideas in the book for how to start making these friendships and connections. And for some people, the people in your family are your peeps. Like, yeah. I was going to ask about that next. Yeah. Should we talk about that? Yeah. Oh, family. Yeah. It's a big one. And now my, I'm very, very fortunate because I feel like my peeps are my family. I have a sister who I'm very close to, and I'm very close to both my parents, but some people just don't have that in their family or their family is very far away. And I mean, look, for some people, their family members are no longer alive or their family members are like not functional, not helpful yeah. people that for reasons of addiction or mental illness or just differences of opinion or whatever it may be, it's not a good match. Yeah. And so here's what I would say. If you're lucky, your family are your peeps, right? They're people you're connected to, you're close to, you can call them up and vent and complain or whatever. You can celebrate with them. It's great. Sometimes your family are your crew. You know, my in-laws pick up my kids. Sometimes they drive them around, they spend the night with them. It's great. You know, they really help us in that way. They're very supportive. They're very engaged grandparents. It's fantastic. I would recommend that your family not be your pro team, right? Mm -hmm. If someone in your family is like a pediatrician or a literacy specialist or a pediatric dentist or whatever, they probably shouldn't be treating your kids. So like you can go to them for a quick consultation or a referral, but then go, go find a separate person. And look, if you are in the unfortunate position that your family is none of these, right? They're not a source of support. That's legitimately hard. That is something to be grieved. That is a time when you stay the hell off social media on Mother's Day and Father's Day and Siblings Day because it will trigger the crap out of you. And just know that parenting is going to be a little harder for you because you don't have that family support. And there's not a lot you can do about it other than let yourself find time to grieve, to be sad about it because it stinks. It just stinks. And it's just something to know, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so family is a mixed bag, right? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. You have a section, speaking of family, you have a section in your book where you talk about how your husband taught you to ignore the dishes. Oh, man. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So this is on my broader section about multitasking and why multitasking makes us crazy and makes us more likely to lose it. So... When my husband, when the girls were younger, so my daughters are 20 months apart. So when they were little, we had like two under two, and then we had little ones, right? So he would be at work, and I'd be at home with them for the day, and he'd come home, and the house would be clean, and the counters would be wiped off, and the dishwasher would be humming, and the girls would be fed, and I would be a nutcase. I would Mm -hmm. be a raging, psychotic nutbag who was like, (laughs) take these kids, get away from me. I don't want anybody touching me. I'm going to go stare at a wall and drool onto my lap and lose my damn mind. (laughs) And he'd be like, "Um, okay. And I'd come home after he was with the girls for a day, and the house would be a wreck. It would be... Hi, honey, if you're there, I love you. The house would be pretty trashed. Mm-hmm. There would be like dishes in the sink and the 
books they had read on the counter or, you know, toys on the couch, stuffed animals everywhere, puzzles out. And I'd be like, how was your day, babe? And he was like, it was pretty good. And I'd be like, okay, I hate everything about you right now. Right. I hate right. that you left me a mess. I hate that like you aren't a psychotic nutbag at the end of the day with the girls. I just, I literally hate everything. And it took me a while to realize that there was actually a little bit of magic in there that my husband had discovered that I hadn't. To all the people out there who are listening, the magic was not in the mess making. That was not <laughs> awesome. That still makes me crazy. But he was just doing one thing at a time. So when he was with the girls, he was just playing the game with them or mm-hmm. doing the Legos or the little matching game or whatever. And then when he was doing the dishes, he was just feeding them dinner. He was doing whatever it was. He was just doing it. And for me, I we, like we'd get out the Candyland game, which someday I think we should have like a ceremonial Candyland bonfire. And <laughs> like just invite every parent in the country and have one anyways. And I would go and then I'd like run to check an email on my phone or I'd like fold a towel in the stack or I'd go like try to empty the dishwasher before my turn. Mm. And so no matter what I was doing with the girls, I would do something for like one minute or three minutes or five minutes. And then I try to do this other thing. And I was multitasking. And in my mind, I was like, I am an awesome mother. I'm totally adulting. I'm doing all the stuff. I'm getting it done. And what I didn't realize is that it was wearing me down. It was mm-hmm. causing stress. Mm-hmm. I was exhausted. I was far more likely to drop something, break something, forget something, hit send on an email to the wrong person. And absolutely, I was snapping at my kids more. I learned I don't think my husband meant to teach me this lesson. And I generally don't want to learn anything from my husband and poor guy. Anytime he tries to teach me anything, I accuse him of mansplaining, even when he's not. That's a little fun marital game we like to play. But what I did learn from him is that I need to slow down and do one thing at a time. So now the dishes stay in the sink until the end of the day. And then we do a big load. Mm -hmm. Generally, the house the clutter sticks around until the evening when I'm like, hey, girls, time to clean up. Now, I will admit that there are times when the clutter gets too much for me because clutter is absolutely a trigger for me. And we have to do cleanup in the middle of the day. But now that I'm just working really hard at doing one thing at a time, my stress level is way down. My time with my kids is more enjoyable and I'm far less likely to explode at them. That's so awesome. Is that how you, because you also have two other books, which I'll mention, and I'll link to all of your books in our show notes, but you've got two books on mindfulness. One is Ready, Set, Breathe, Practicing Mindfulness with Your Children, which I love and bought that book a few years ago when I became a guidance counselor because I you know, do some of that stuff with the kids in school and also Parenting in the Present Moment. So did that story with your husband and the dishes and the multitasking lead you to becoming more mindful? How did you start down that path with meditation and mindfulness and all those things? So it was actually me losing my temper with my kids uh-huh. that took me down that path. And I write about this in the book that the girls were young and we they were like two and three years old and we had a really bad night and I just, I couldn't stop yelling at them. So I was finally like, I got to I got to stop this. It was just a rough night. And so I, I put him in front of the TV because I remember thinking, like better that they melt their little brain cells in front of the TV than be screamed at by their mom one more time. And I remember I turned on Daniel Tiger, love Daniel Tiger. And I sat down at the computer and here I am. I am a person with a PhD in social work, which is basically like a PhD in confusing thoughts and big feelings. Mm -hmm. I could not figure this out. So I sat down in front of the computer and I literally Googled, how do I stop yelling at my kids? Mm -hmm. And they were like roughly one bajillion hits. I mean, there were so many web pages, which I guess 
should have made me feel better that I'm not the only person writing about this. But what I saw was, oh my gosh, there's literally a bajillion people on the planet who have figured out how to not and I haven't. Interesting. So I went through this long path of really a journey of nothing working, essentially, because it was all these sort of quick fixes. Like I didn't understand the underlying problems, right? The underlying problem was that I had postpartum anxiety and irritability is absolutely a symptom of anxiety. I was sleep deprived, which was related to my anxiety. At that point, the girls were actually sleeping pretty well. And those were the two big ones that were causing me to be so irritable. But instead of understanding that, I was trying to put a Band-Aid on it and be like, I'm just going to not yell. If I could have done that, I would have done that. Right. All of this took me, the first step in my sort of journey was ending up in a mindfulness-based stress reduction course where I started to learn about mindfulness and the basic strategies of understanding what mindfulness means and how to be more mindful. And around that time, I also started to notice a lot of things because noticing is what we do in mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And I noticed the whole situation with my husband. Mm-hmm. It was hard not to notice the mess he left, but I noticed this underlying dynamic that was actually very wise of him. And I started to notice the value really of focusing on one thing at a time. And what I will say, because I got to tell you, when I start talking to parents, especially working moms about doing one thing at a time, I see this look of panic on their faces. Like mm-hmm. I can never get anything done. Literally our house will like fall apart and burn to the ground if I'm not multitasking. Well, uh, yeah. And I was thinking about this actually, because, well, we'll get to this in a second, but because you talk a lot about putting down your phone. Ugh. And I was thinking about how people who listen to my podcast, I know them and they're thinking like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that I should do that. I know that I should do one thing at a time. I know like, it's like when we say, yeah, I know I should exercise and eat healthy food, you know, and then there's always like a, but with why they're, why they can't or they're not or whatever. So do you feel like it's the same thing with mindfulness? Of course it is. And here's Mm -hmm. what I would say. If you're happy with how you're parenting and you feel like you have a good relationship with your kids and you feel like you only lose it with them occasionally, Maybe you don't need to change things. Again, we're going for a solid B here, people. We don't need an A+. Mm -hmm. And so if you're like, I actually don't lose it with my kids that often, and I think we're pretty good, then you don't need to do anything. Stick with it. Don't don't fix it if it ain't broke, right? right? But if you are like, wow, I am actually exploding at my children far more than I'm comfortable with, and parenting is not fun, and I feel guilty, and blah, 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 you know, it's not good, then maybe it's well, and there's also some people don't consider themselves yellers, right? right? But they will totally shut down or give their kids the silent treatment or, you know, which is another version of losing it with your kids. It's just not, yeah. you know, in a yelling loud sort of way. Absolutely. There's a lot of different ways. Some people get really snarky. Mm-hmm. Some people say really biting things. Like my husband, he doesn't yell. He did. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a family of like pro yellers. So when we yell, like we hit decimals, right? (laughs) My husband doesn't yell, but he will use sort of a snappy tone of voice, which in my mind is like, oh, it's a day that ends in wide tone of voice. It's like a normal tone of voice. But for him, because he's such a thoughtful, grounded, even guy that on the rare occasion when he busts out with this tone of voice, I'm like, ooh, Mm -hmm. kind of just yelled at me because that's his version of yelling. Right. By the way, if you're more like him than me, that's better. <laughs> but we all are where we are. Um, some people slam doors. Some people yeah. throw things. Some people even hit their kids. And yeah. what I would say is, there but for the grace of God go I. Right? I can't tell you why I haven't hit my kid. 
I don't know how I, I have not crossed that line, but I'm, I'm lucky, I guess I haven't. But if this is something you're struggling with, I would really encourage you to do what you need to do to get out of that cycle right now. Cause it's there, there's nothing okay about it. And you know this, and I don't want people to feel too ashamed, but my guess is you probably already feel that way. And so there's a lot of ideas in the book for how to get support. But anyways, the point is there's a lot of different ways to lose it with your kids. Mm -hmm. Understanding what that looks like for you is an important first step into changing it. So for me, it really was a lot of yelling. But back to the multitasking really quick, because there is a point I want to make, which is important. Look, I'm not saying you should never multitask. Like I listen to audiobooks and I do phone calls when I'm out for walks, for example, and I knit in front of the TV, right? But if you are already experiencing a lot of emotions, if you are exhausted, overwhelmed, frustrated, whatever, if there are major ramifications to your multitasking, so if you're driving a car, that's a terrible time to multitask because if you end up in an accident, that's bad. Or if your kid is around, that's a pretty bad time to multitask, really. Mm-hmm. And so what I would say is, if your kid is around, either pay attention to them or kind of ignore them. You know, So say to them, I can't pay attention to you right now. I'm doing this other thing. And if you have, look, my daughters are 9 and 11, and I've trained them over the years that you know, sometimes I have to say it three or four times, but they know. If you've got a little one, Obviously, they're not going to hear that. They don't care. They're not going to understand you or they're going to ignore you. Um, and that's when you have to have a whole lot of patience and compassion with yourself and with your kid because it is a hard stage of life and it mm-hmm. won't be that way forever. Yeah. So one of the things that is different about our approaches is when you talk about triggers and you talk about how a trigger for you is the clutter or the Boston winters or something like that. Whereas what I teach is that those things are neutral circumstances and your thoughts about them are your triggers. That is fascinating. (laughs) It's such an interesting idea because for me, yes. So I have lots of thoughts all the time constantly. And yeah. And so thoughts can absolutely be triggers. And one of my big triggers is when that thought pops up, I'm a terrible mother. I'm mm-hmm. screwing this up. I'm ruining my kids. They're, we will never have enough money to pay for their therapy. All of these thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. Those are triggers. I would also say that there are times for me, and I don't know if you have this experience where the trigger happens in sort of a more it happens in my body. It's like a neuro neurological experience where I will be in a situation where there's a lot of people or a lot of noise or I'm being touched a lot. And the tension is like growing in my body, even as I'm not thinking about it. And I'm not, I would argue, I would argue that you are thinking about it. You're just not aware of what you're thinking in that moment. And the thoughts are creating those feelings in your body, those vibrations in your body of discomfort or, you know, whatever it is that you want to call it. But that's, that's sort of what I talk about with my coaching clients. And those are just, those are your emotions and they're always coming from your thoughts. Ooh, (laughs) what you're making me think of. Did you ever see that movie? I think it was called Life is Beautiful. Yeah, of course. Yeah, about, so I saw it many years ago. I'm totally going to describe it wrong. So please feel free to correct me. But it's a father and their child and it's a World War II Holocaust movie and they're in a concentration camp. And he basically manages to convince the boy that it's kind of a game. Mm -hmm. Like 
Mm-hmm. It's, he, he shields him from the reality and creates this narrative where it's like not that bad. And the kid right. really isn't that scared. And it's an unbelievable movie. And God, how I wish I could. Well, I hope I never have the reason to parent that way. But what an amazing thing that this man was able to take the, the one of the most horrible experiences anybody ever has to live through and really shield his son from it with, with his own attitude. Yeah. Right? And so, yes, of course you're right. And I think what I struggle with is that's hard, right? Getting our thoughts to a better place when we are surrounded by triggers, both internal and external, whether it's pain, exhaustion, stressful relationships or interactions, financial worries, you know, environmental stressors, that's hard. And so I think what I often think about is how do we make things easier? Mm-hmm. So I am not the Dalai Mama over here. I'm not a Zen master. I can't. I'm I not- love that, by the way. Did you come up with that? <laughs> I'd I love loved- to think I did, Let- but it's certainly possible. I heard it somewhere else. Let's just make sure everyone heard you say the Dalai Mama. That was right. awesome. Okay. And let's also make sure everybody heard me say, I'm not the Dalai <laughs> Mama. So, you know, if there is a way, I look, life in general is hard. Let's just own that. Life is hard. Parenting is hard. And if it's all feels really hard for you right now, it's not because you're doing it wrong. It's because it's hard. And so, and and I believe like it's supposed to be hard. Yeah. I feel like it's supposed to be this way because it is this way. Right. Yeah. I think there is this real idea out there that is perpetuated by social media. Mm Mm-hmm. And too many advice articles, which I realize is really rich coming from someone who writes advice books, but we'll just move <laughs> on from that. That there is this idea that life is easy for some people. Mm. And there are some people who have figured out parenting and it's like simple and easy and they're coming through this whole process unscathed. And when we believe that, we're like, oh, why is it easy for them and not for me? I must be doing something wrong. Well, newsflash, it's not easy for anyone. Right. And my favorite example of this that I know my friend wouldn't mind me sharing is uh, we were at a religious service. It's called Tashlik. It's part of Rosh Hashanah. And you like throw these stones in the river. And so a bunch of us were there and kind of releasing your sins and refreshing for the new year and stuff. So we were out there and all the kids were throwing their stones in the river. And there was a reporter from the local newspaper there. And this reporter took the most unbelievably gorgeous picture of my friend's son. And he looked calm and serene. He's a little kid. He's like eight or nine calm and serene and present. And like, he was dressed in this little sweater vest and this boat. It was amazing. And I know the minute I saw it, I was like, I want my kid to be like that kid. That is the like, you know, he just incredible. Well, behind the photo, the kid had had an unbelievably rough day, full of meltdowns, full of like really defiant behavior. This kid was really struggling. He's an amazing child. He's a delightful, lovely, incredible child, but it had been a rough day. Mm -hmm. And, but that's not what we saw in the picture. Right. Right. And I feel like that is just the example of what we all think. And so what I really encourage parents to do, look, one of the ways, you know, you're with your peeps is they're the people who remind you that it's okay if it's hard and you're not alone if it's hard. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always looking for ways to make things a little bit easier. So yes, I certainly, you're right. And I, I appreciate the reality check that when I am in these experiences where I'm like, I hate everybody because people are talking and touching me and I just want them all to get the hell away from me. You're right. I'm absolutely having those thoughts and they're not helpful thoughts. I mean, you're coming from the world of mindfulness in a very clear and totally logical way about that these, these things are all neutral and it's really the value we assign to it. Right. And so part of the work is continuing 
to find a way to release those thoughts and let go of them and find more grounding experiences. And part of the work is like saying no to concerts and huge situations that bring me no joy at all and cause me like have to work to overcome them. And so I've gotten really good at saying now, hey, thanks for that invitation to that concert. I actually don't like going to live music. Yeah. So I think it's both, right? Yeah. But that's a good point. Thank you. Cool. So one thing we haven't talked about yet is self-compassion. And I know you write about this in the book as well. So what can you tell us about that? I love self-compassion. And when I first, you have this like funny smile on your face. When (laughs) when I first learned about it in my mindfulness class, I was like, oh no, 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 no. I am not putting my hand over my heart. I am not Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live. Who's going to be like, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. I was so resistant for a long time. And then. Why? Because you just thought that it was like woo-woo or? I thought it was super cheesy and corny. And I am very, as anyone who reads like three pages of my book will know, I'm a very snarky, sarcastic person. It's just how I roll. And so when we get into like the cheesy, syrupy, sweet stuff, I just, I can't, I cannot with it. It's just not my style. And so, but and yet you write about it. So tell us, yeah, because I, I realize that's not what it is. I had to learn. I had to get over my judgmental, teenage, rebellious self. So I kept going to this mindfulness class, and one day I had this like, you know, I lost it with my kids again, and instead of beating myself up, I found myself saying, you know what, parenting is hard. It's hard for everyone. I'm not alone. I had a bad moment. That doesn't make me a terrible parent. It just means I had a bad moment. And maybe I, I need a little like quiet time with a cup of coffee and a blanket or my cat or something. But I, I had compassion for myself in the moment. And it was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. It was a completely different experience from, you know, the pre- what I used to do was like run in the kitchen, find the chocolate, shove it in my face and be like, I'm a terrible mother. Yeah. That is yeah. not helpful. I mean, I really, I still enjoy chocolate. Don't get me wrong, but that's not helpful. And what I learned and what the research supports is that self-compassion is a really powerful strategy for behavior change. So whether you're trying to stop smoking cigarettes or trying to stick to a diet or trying to not lose it with your kids so often, having compassion for yourself can actually help you do that. It's really empowering. Mm -hmm. Basically, what it looks like is talking to yourself and treating yourself the way you would treat a really good friend who is having a bad moment. Yes. So you wouldn't be like, yeah, you actually suck. You're a terrible <laughs> parent. Just go down that bottle of wine or that tray of brownies and like give up. Yeah. Like that is not what we would say to a friend. So why would we say that to ourselves? So what we know is that when we can have some compassion, remember that we're not alone. Remember this is hard for everyone. Know that it's okay to make mistakes, that you don't have to be a perfect parent to be a great one. When we can remember all these things, we are much more likely to recover from our sort of explosion, our bad temper sooner and be able to reconnect with our child sooner. It helps calm you down and get you back on track. So if I could sort of leave your listeners with just one idea, it would be cut yourself some slack. Try not to go so hard on yourself. This parenting thing is hard and it's okay if if you're struggling, you know, it can get better. And the first step is really to try to have some kindness and compassion for yourself. I love it. Thank you. That's a beautiful way to end. And tell us 
how we can find all of your books? I mean, I'm going to link to them, but are they in bookstores? Are they in different formats? How can we get these? Yes, they're all available in paperback and uh, Kindle. This Uh new one, How to Stop Losing Your Beep with Your Kids, will be available on audiobooks soon. And, um, you know, this book, this new book just came out recently. And so it's in bookstores across the country and also available on Amazon, IndieBound, folks' favorite online retailers. Awesome. And are you the one reading the book on Audible? I'm not. And I'm so okay. happy about that because <laughs> listen to my man voice. Are you hearing my man? Which is not bad to have a man voice. I just don't like my man voice. So um, <laughs> I, they, apparently there are people who are professionals who read books for a living and I'm really good at doing the kid voices in the books, like all the voices when I read to my kids. Yeah. But also there's a lot of profanity in this book. I don't want to say the S word. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't want to swear that. Yeah, they actually found an actor who's willing to swear a lot in a parenting book, apparently. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that because I do love to listen to the books. And thank you so much for being here today. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I hope that we can get together with Nancy at some point, either down here in Florida or up in Boston, because that would be super fun. That would be amazing. I would love it. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Carla. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Less Drama, More Mama podcast. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to write a quick review on iTunes and make sure you subscribe too so you never miss a show. Got a question, comment, or idea for an upcoming episode? Email me at pam at lessdramamoremama.com. Listener.